From the high desert in Far East West Texas, this is the world's fastest growing sports media podcast with that sports TV ratings. Hi, I'm Robert Seidman, and joining me for this episode is Derek Thompson. He's the senior editor at The Atlantic and best-selling author of the book, Hitmakers, The Science of Popularity in the Age of Distraction. Derek, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. It's great to be here. So I've been following your work for several years, and uh, you don't always write about TV, uh, but when you do, I always find you reasonable and measured, which is sort of rare in the, uh, <laughs> in the TV media landscape. And uh, when you wrote about ESPN's layoffs uh, last May, I believe the headline is ESPN is not doomed. Uh, but, the, you know, the subtext of the article was, but, you know, th- these are these are th- signs of the uh, of the changing landscape. And so I do recommend anyone who listens to this podcast really read uh, anything Derek has to say about uh, about TV in general, not just sports. Uh, but you have a couple of great articles in the May Atlantic. One of them was uh, on the uh, coming Disney streaming service mm-hmm. and why Netflix should be scared and raises the questions of whether Disney might deliberately try to destroy both its box office and TV businesses uh, to catapult catapult its uh, streaming service to the top. Uh, talk about that for, for a second, if you can. Sure. I mean, I think one of the cool ironies of the entertainment world right now is that Disney is trying to become Netflix faster than Netflix can become Disney. Um, right. That essentially Disney wants to add a streaming service, a Disney flicks, I suppose you could call it, although I'll explain in a second why I think that might be a misnomer. Um, but for now, let's go with that. Disney wants to add a Disney flicks uh, faster than Netflix can essentially build out its content, its IP, its catalog. Um, And Disney obviously has the best catalog of stuff that exists. They have not only all those uh, classic Walt Disney films going back, I don't know, six, seven decades, uh, back to, you know, Snow White, their first animated feature-length film. But then you also have the fact that they own Pixar and they own all the Marvel movies and they own the Star Wars movies and Indiana Jones. And they're now trying to buy Fox. Um, and I think basically that if Disney had a, uh, a streaming service, that they would have some, something that's better than Netflix. But Netflix is only better than Disney um, because Disney doesn't have streaming. But once Disney equals Netflix on tech, then Disney will be better than Netflix on, on content, equal on tech. And that should be terrifying for a company in Netflix that currently has basically no profits. Right. So how, how do they how do they stage it, in your in your opinion, to sort of maximize uh, both, both on the Disney front, but more on the ESPN front? You know, what has been probably the, the, the best business model in the history of, uh, of television or at least at least of the cable bundle? How do they sort of maximize uh, getting getting uh, getting a, a foot in the ground with the streaming service, but not killing uh, the golden goose with the uh, the eight dollars a month per eighty six million households or whatever it currently is. Yeah, well, you've just now very well summarized why this is a very very difficult thing to do and why most companies fail to do it. I mean, you know, history is rich with uh, the catalog or with the with the list of of companies that have seen some, a, a disruptor sort of rise from nothing and failed to change their business model to adapt in time. Um, and I think that this is clearly, you know, Disney has essentially said we are willing to risk a little bit of our current business in order to fund a business that we think is the future. Um, I think that having a CEO like Bob Iger, who is really well respected, 
on Wall Street definitely helps to sort of ease this transition. Um, but clearly, Disney sort of has a, a precarious balancing act right now. On the one hand, you have this pay television business, this cable bundle business, that is clearly in structural decline. There's no question about that. Uh, there's evidence that cord cutting is actually accelerating. Um, yeah. But you have this pay TV business in structural decline that's unbelievably profitable. I mean, ESPN, despite all of the, of the, of the, the years of negative headlines and the layoffs, ESPN is still one of the most profitable media properties in the world. So, right. I mean, it's, it's tough. You, you, don't, you don't want to blow that up just to, to go straight to streaming. So on the one hand, you have to sort of nurse this, you know, this, this declining business, sort of ease the decline, while at the same time putting a lot of money and a lot of special exclusive content onto a streaming service that will clearly be competitive and maybe even um, – uh, 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 what do you call it? Um, maybe even a, a replacement product um, for right. for pay TV. Um, that the same way people are canceling their pay TV subscriptions to get Netflix, you know, once you add Disney Flix to that, then not getting pay TV gets even more attractive. Um, so the strategy itself is is potentially ruinous to to, um, to the pay TV model. Um, and I think Disney is going to have to Disney, I think, is, is going to have to be careful about about not only what they do, but also what they say. Because you can freak out a lot of people on Wall Street right. if you essentially tell them, look, we're going to jettison the exceedingly profitable pay TV business and, you know, put everything on streaming. Yeah. So I don't know how much you've thought about it. And if you haven't thought about it much, that's fine. But uh, have you thought much about uh, how how ESPN, uh, how, excuse me, how Disney, when it rolls this service out? How much it will sort of amp up trying to trying to actually get people on it at first. So when the when when the the first iteration of of mm -hmm. Disney Flicks comes out, um, how, how will they position it in a way, uh, or or do you think they'll actually position it in a way that it, it it's it's clearly not intended to kill off the the the, the TV bundle instantly? Um, I I think it's, I think it's worth saying two things. Um, first, I think that Disney is going to try reasonably hard to make sure that this product is really, really attractive. Because let's be honest, it's going to be horrifically embarrassing if Disney says we want a product that rivals Netflix or at least can, can compete with Netflix um, for people's streaming money. And then in like the first quarter or, for, or first half year out of the gate, it only adds like 1.5 million users. That would be extremely embarrassing. And yeah. Disney, stocks, Disney stock should deserve to collapse in that case, because it will show that Netflix has something like a monopoly in this space. And we know how much investors love the uh, presumption of a, <laughs> yep. of a, of a monopoly. Um, yep. De facto so, so, or otherwise. Yep. Yeah. So, so clearly, so clearly they're going to try hard to, you know, they've got a, a star Wars series that John Favreau is going to be directing. Um, they, I think are going to release some movies that were otherwise going to go to the movie theater uh, straight to streaming. Um, mm. They're going to try reasonably hard. Um, uh, at the same time, look, it, it's, it, the, the tough thing here is it's, you're, it's a Chinese finger trap. Um, the better the Disney Flix product is, the, the more competitive it is with pay TV, right? Right. I mean, there's no yep. scenario where that, where that statement is not true. If you imagine a world where there are seven Netflixes, where there's a Netflix and a Disney Flix and a Time Warner Flix, and a 21st century Fox flicks, 
and every yeah. single entertainment company has a direct-to-consumer streaming product, the, the accumulation of, of that offering makes pay TV less attractive because pay TV is no longer exclusive um, uh, in, its, in, its, you know, uh, in, in, in owning the rights to these wonderful shows. Um, right. So, so there's, there's no way out of it. You know, Disney, Disney has to create a compelling streaming product, and that streaming product will almost certainly accelerate um, the decline of what we think of as the traditional cable bundle. Um, the last thing that I, that, that I just, that I just want to say, though, is that um, where this really becomes interesting, though, probably isn't on television, although television is really interesting. It's, it's, it's in movies um, that, you know, right now, Disney just completely dominates the box office. I think in any of the last 12 years, it had the number one movie in America. Um, it has something like, I think, 30% of um, uh, of, of the domestic box office and, um, in, in good years. And it only releases a handful of movies. Like those movies are just such monstrous hits. Now imagine if Disney really, really, really wanted to strengthen its streaming product, wanted to guarantee that it doesn't get 1 million signups in the first quarter. It gets like 5 million or maybe even like seven or 8 million. Um, or, or well, 10 million star Wars, or, star Wars, or, or, only or, available or, on Netflix. Exactly. So what, what's the only thing that gets 10 million people to buy a ticket to sign up essentially for the product? It's Marvel and Star Wars, right? Yeah. It's, it's blockbuster IPs. And so the real big question that I ask in the piece and the thing that I think is so fascinating is what if Disney says, screw it, let's pull, let, let's, let's make movies, let's make Disney movies a Disney subscriber only product. Let's say if you want to watch Black Panther, Sign up for Disney Flix, and then you can watch Black Panther. You know, either in either you know at home, you know, or in theaters, or maybe you, you futz with the windowing, and we don't need to get into you know windowing concepts, but you find some way to allow um, you know subscribers to get that movie really, really early on. Um, well, now you're clearly eroding your film revenue, and a lot of people are going to freak out because you know you're going to stop breaking records uh, with every new Star Wars opening. But look what you're also doing. You're also getting a bunch of people to become not one-off ticket buyers, but potentially month after month or even year after year subscribers. You know, someone paying $10 to Disney for two years is giving Disney $240. That's a lot more than $15 for a movie ticket to Black Panther. So the, the math works out that if you sort of draw out the time span of it, um, using blockbusters to suck people into Disney Flex could be the most valuable play possible. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I could talk about uh, this stuff with you forever, and uh, I guess <laughs> next year when when the, when the service launches, I will try to get you back on for a, a sure, longer yeah, bit of time. But uh, but you you also in uh, in the May Atlantic is a is a very fun piece on uh, on the you know on the rationality of uh, being a fair weather sports fan, <laughs> uh, and I did want to talk about it because it's just it's just a really fun way to to look at it and. Um, so you're sort of a younger version of me in that you, you grew up in the same area, Northern Virginia, uh, that I grew up in. But I think you grew up during a time when the Redskins were never, ever good. Yeah. And uh, in, in my, you know, the, you know, 1982 to 1992 was basically my 20s. So I at least yeah. had that going for me, uh, which, which, which was a fun experience. Uh, but, but you did not have that experience. So first of all, you know, just describe your, your overall sports fandom and, and how you came about whatever kind of sports fan you are these days. Sure. So I was born in the mid eighties. Um, I was not privy to the Redskins glory years in the eighties uh, and I guess uh, early nineties. 
um, I sort of became, um, you know, aware of sports, uh, conscious of sports uh, in the, in the mid 90s. And at that point, the Redskins had been pretty bad for a while, and they would continue to be disappointing for what the next, you know, two decades, twenty years, um, yeah, twenty years, yeah. Um, and so, you know, my dad uh, had a, the, the position that you know the Redskins were were, were suck, and uh, and that the Capitals were disappointing, and that. Um, uh, that the Wizards, or I guess the Bullets at the time, um, uh, were even worse. So his position was, look, I love sports. Um, I want my son to love sports. Um, we'll just watch what's good. We'll watch Sunday Night Baseball and, and watch what's good. Um, and I, I sort of accidentally, through him, developed a kind of triumphalist attitude towards sports, right? You know, rooted for great players. I, um, my uncle introduced me to um, the Yankees, and uh, that was the mid to late 90s. And we all remember what happened with the Yankees then, and so I, I found it quite easy to root for. Yep. Yeah, yeah, found it quite easy to root for um, the Yankees and their captain Derek Jeter, especially since he shared my name. Um, and then <laughs> when you know Peyton Manning, you know, was coming out of college and you know just winning immediately and putting up huge numbers as quarterback, I loved watching Peyton. Um, and then in basketball, I, you know, I, I, how can you not love watching LeBron? So you know, I became that most most hated of creatures, the Fairweather fan or the bandwagoner. Um, I, I loved great players and I rooted for greatness. And for a long time, I, you know, I, I felt like I had to apologize for this. And eventually I realized like, no, I, I should apologize. Like sports is an entertainment. Sports is, is entertainment. Yep. And in every other entertainment category, we root for what's good. Um, if we love you too, and then two consecutive U2 albums are bad, we don't say, well, I have to listen to them because I'm a fan. I have to love them because I've already pledged my undying loyalty to Bono. You say, well, Joshua Tree is great. I'll listen to Joshua Tree yep. and I won't listen to the new one. Um, and so people sometimes you know, contort themselves in the pretzels in order to say, no, sports is different. Sports is about community. Sports is about it's, it's about city. It's about, you know, it's about suffering. And I just don't think any of these things are true. Going in reverse order, there's no reason to suffer for entertainment. There's enough suffering in life. <laughs> like, just like, root for what makes you happy. And if rooting for the Cleveland Browns makes you miserable, as it ought to, because they are miserable, <laughs> then just find another team. Um, and, uh, it, you know, it, there's, there's all sorts of psychological and emotional studies that find that, um, uh, that, that especially men, uh, rooting for teams that are um, routine losers is really detrimental um, to self-confidence and, and short-term um, uh, uh, happiness. And so there's no reason to, to immiserate ourselves like this when we have other choices. Um, and then even, you know, then I, I make the, I want to make the slightly more um, complicated point, And I think, um, I don't know, maybe sophisticated point um, that, uh, you know, teams are essentially monopolies. You know, American sports leagues are designed such that there's only one team from every professional league per city, unless the city is really, really huge, like New York and LA, in which case maybe they get two. But basically, you only have, for the vast majority of Americans, really have one choice for a local team in each sport. Um, and those franchise owners, who tend to be billionaires, often use that connection to um, the city um, to, uh, to sort of enact municipal extortion. They, they right. tell the governor, they tell the, the mayor, like, you give us this money for a new stadium or else. And then they get yep. hundreds of millions of dollars that, that could have gone to other municipal causes. And so, you know, this, this relationship only exists because fans refuse to change their allegiances. So I guess in summary, I would just say emotionally, civically, economically, psychologically, it's just better to have a somewhat more fluid relationship with fandom.
Yeah. I, so I loved your quote. Uh, when I, when I hear once in a lifetime, I think only once, why is fleeting happiness worthwhile, a worthwhile trade-off for decades of agony? And that's a, that's a great rational way of, of asking the question. I don't think it is worth the agony, but uh, a lot of sports fans would disagree. Uh, yeah, so I, I, I've seen my Twitter responses in my inbox. I know they disagree. So uh, I'll get you out of here with a, with an uncomfortable one for you. So evaluate uh, Derek uh, Derek Jeter's run as the uh, as as the the president of the Marlins so far. Sure, uh, th- that's an easy evaluation. Derek Jeter is a sleeper agent um, who has been dispatched by the New York Yankees in order to destroy <laughs> the Florida Marlins and send Giancarlo Stanton. Uh, to the Yankees uh, for basically nothing. Uh, I suppose I could come up with you know a more charitable explanation for what Jeter's doing in Florida, but actually no other explanation suffices. So Occam's razor dictates that uh, Jeter's a sleeper agent um, and Cashman sends his thanks. Hey, Derek, thanks so much for joining the podcast. It was fun. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks again to Derek Thompson for joining the podcast. Uh, that was fun, and I, I kind of like the uh, the short podcast format. Anyway, you can find Derek on Twitter at DKTHOMP, and you can find all the past podcasts, including the recent one with Ryan Glassbeagle of The Big Lead and former Fox Sports executive Patrick Crakes talking about the new NFL schedule on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, TuneIn, Stitcher, RSS, and SportsTVRatings.com. Thanks for listening.